Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome to the Football Digest podcast. Thanks so much for joining me, John Croft, Jeremy Cross, my name's sake, and Matt Dunn um, this morning um, talking and lots to discuss, um, obviously, guys. And we just had the the sad news about uh, John Motson sadly passing away, a legendary BBC commentator, and um, we'll be playing our tributes to him later in, in the show. Also, um, uh, Liverpool will look back upon the Champions League um, uh, tile, which perhaps put a new focus into into the job facing Jurgen Klopp, the Carabao Cup final, and of course the publication of the white paper. Um, what does that mean for the future of football? But guys, let's start with Liverpool, shall we? And um, uh, it, it, the, the fallout from Real Madrid. Jeremy, you and I were both at uh, Anfield the other night. I have to say, I left the ground thinking, did I really just see that? I mean, it was just the most astonishing game, didn't it? And it, it certainly did put a new context, a new meaning, I think, into the job facing Jurgen Klopp, doesn't it? Yeah, I agree with you what you say. I mean, if you think back to the final between those two in Paris nine months ago, you know, I know that obviously that game is remembered for all the wrong reasons now, but if you if you think about the game itself, it was quite a cagey game that, you know, there wasn't much to choose between um, the two teams that night in Paris. But on um, on on Tuesday night, the, the difference between Real Madrid and Liverpool was so vast, it was alarming to feel. You felt like, how have Liverpool gone backwards so quickly um, in that space of time? And the simple answer is probably... Um, Liverpool's midfield was totally outplayed by a younger, more vibrant and a better Real Madrid midfield. Um, so it was an astonishing result, but it was a wake-up call to Liverpool, to the owners who were obviously looking for investment. Um, John Dubier and Henry, Henry said earlier this week, didn't he, that he doesn't want to sell the club, he wants investment, but they need serious investment, Liverpool. When you think about the fact that um, some of the bigger, big top six clubs are state-owned, Manchester United are probably going to be state-owned come next season. They have vast, vast wealth. Chelsea, we've seen how much money they've spent in the last few weeks. And Liverpool, on the face of it, can't compete with those clubs in terms of which players they target, what, what wages they can offer players. So 
I can't see a solution to the problems that lie ahead for Klopp, to be honest. No. Matt, Matt, it is amazing, isn't it? When, when you think, you know, Jeremy raised the, the point there. It's nine months since, you know, if, if, if you believe the Champions League vision, the best two teams were in Europe were Real Madrid and Liverpool. And now Liverpool, seven points, I think, off the top four. Yeah. The defence, you know, is massively struggling. The midfield, well, it needs to rebuild. And, and frankly, you know, it is surprising, isn't it, how far Liverpool have slipped within that short space of time. It shows you what a fickle thing confidence is. Um, you know, last, uh, last couple of years, Liverpool have been flying on the clock. They've had belief in themselves. They've got results and made it and probably achievements that they probably weren't the best team to get to the European finals, but they did it through, you know, Barcelona, you know, case in point. And now that's gone. It's gone completely so badly so that, you know, they can take a 2-0 lead. And when the moment things start going wrong, they just implode. Uh, and that is a disease that's really hard to clear out of a club, but it, it needs Klopp to get a hold of it. And I think Klopp, which is going to be the next question, presumably, on the lips of certainly a number of Liverpool fans, is whether it should be Klopp. But I think he deserves a chance to get a chance to get it right. When we talk about all this money um, that's flying around elsewhere, I look back um, when when Abramovich first arrived in the Premier League and United went off the boil, if as it were, for three seasons under the Fergie, uh, didn't win the title. What eventually, and they had Ruth Van Nistelrooy up front, Wayne Rooney up front, that didn't crack it. What eventually got them back on track was this youngster, Cristiano Ronaldo, coming good. Uh, and basically then he, he went again, Fergie, with another generation of stars. And what club's going to find is that key player that can reinvigorate them and breathe fresh life into the side. It's not about, they, they won't necessarily, if, um, John Henry's, determined to retain control, they're not going to be able to compete financially with the biggest clubs in the division. They've got to find a different way of doing it. And Klopp is a good enough manager to coach a team to believe in his ways enough to get the, the success that he has brought to the club already and repeat that success. But it's got to be the right players. And I don't, don't know, looking through that team, whether he has the right amount of energy to, um, to, to build that team again. And he needs to find somewhere fairly quickly. Yeah. Joe, Jeremy, do you, do you think, I, 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 where, where is the priority? And, and B, you know, following on from Matt's point, is, is Klopp the right man to, to, to rebuild it? No doubt his qualities as a manager. I know, you know, this team is a reflection of him, but, you know, he's had, let's not forget, he's had, he's had some really bad luck with injuries. Klopp, you can't, I know we all, all teams getting injured. They have their, more than their fair share. So he's had a lot to contend with. Yeah, look, he's, he's, he's built his legacy. Klopp, he will, whatever happens, he will be revered forever with amongst Liverpool fans. You know, he brought, brought on into the title drought 30 years. But he's in his eighth season now. And I just wonder, you know, he's a high intense manager. And Klopp reminds me of Guardiola, uh, Guardiola in a lot of ways. And it's just like, how long can he keep that going? And just think, if they don't finish in the top four this year, will they look at it and think, you know what, it's a long battle ahead to get back to where we need to be. Have I got the energy to do it? I hope he stays because he's great for the game. You know, he's a very entertaining manager. He's produced some great sides there. Um, and the priority for me would be, look, I mean, 
we've been writing and talking about it for, for ages now, but they clearly need at least two world-class midfielders, one of which could be Jude Bellingham. But, I mean, if you were Jude Bellingham watching that game on Tuesday night from your home in Dortmund, you'd be thinking, hmm, I'll go to Real Madrid probably. Um, and the issue is, I touched on it before, Bellingham would be ideal signing for Liverpool. He's someone you could build your midfield around. Is he one of the, we want to go to Liverpool? I just can't see why he would want to go to Liverpool when you've got, when he can probably have a clubs, any club in the world. So they're going to have an issue attracting top caliber of player if they're not in the top four, which is the same applies to all the big clubs. If they're not in the Champions League, you know, they've got a problem in that, in that respect. So I was thinking it was quite a pivotal, not a pivotal, but a significant moment, which made me chuckle. When um, Henderson came off, I think it was about 70 minutes on Tuesday night. Milner went on, and I was just go- I just googled it. The combined age of those two is sixty nine, and it's like there- there's your problem, Jurgen. You need you need two at least two young, brilliantly good midfielders because Thiago's at thirty, past thirty. Fabinho's going to be thirty this year. Anderson's 32, nearly 33, and Milner. I mean, I, feel, I don't want to single those two out. They've been great servants to Liverpool and great servants to English football, really. But that's the problem. They 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 don't have an engine room. There's too many miles on the clock, basically. Yeah. Having said that, Jeremy, how, how, how old do you think Luka Modric will be when, when he eventually retires? Or, or let me put it another way. In his mid-40s, in his will he still be running Champions League games? It's astonishing, isn't it? When the winner of the World Cup, and it was his last game for Croatia, obviously, um, I was thinking, you might not see him play again. And obviously, we have been fortunate to see him play again this, this year for Real Madrid, but he was just, I don't know, he's one of the greats of his generation, isn't he? But, you know, if you look at the midfield that Real Madrid have, they've got Valverde, um, and Camavinga, uh, who just ran the show, and they're in their early 20s. So that's a position Liverpool need to be in to have two really, really top class midfielders who are going to be there for 10 years. Yeah, no, totally. It is weird, isn't it? Because, you know, it's not just the midfield, is it? I mean, the one, the one defender I thought was who was the exception to the rule the other night was Andy Robertson, who, you know, I mean, massive credit to him. What a player and what a, what a mentality. That he's he's kept motoring, he's kept going. Whereas Alexander Arnold has struggled for confidence without a shadow of a doubt. They're trying out Joe Gomez, who obviously, you know, suffered as much as anyone the other night. Not all his own fault, I hasten to add. Um, and Virgil van Dijk. You saw Virgil van Dijk was so imperious, so untouchable. And yet now, you know, the confidence has even affected him. He's not the player that he was. And you wonder whether that's a physical issue or or a mental issue, you know, I think it's more likely the latter, i.e. confidence. But, you know, you don't know. You just don't know. And it's 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 a massive rebuild on, on the cards. Cause it's, it's, it's interesting, Joe, you say that because another Liverpool player who's never lived up to the height that, that was placed upon him, um, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, uh, I did an interview with him quite a while back, just after his first bout of serious injuries. And he admitted, he was really open, it was a fascinating uh, chat that we had with him, um, but he admitted that he no longer trusted his body. So although physically he was fine, he didn't believe he could push off with the same pace. He didn't believe that when the ball's over the top, you know, he could get there. 
And the same with these injuries. I mean, Gomez, for him to have the mental resilience to come back from the physical pain he's been in and to still believe that he can compete without getting injured. Same with Van Dijk, even, it just seems. They, they, they don't seem to have that invincibility that, the, well, certainly Van Dijk used to have. And, uh, and I think, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think there's too many people playing with too many problems and not believing in themselves anymore. Look, it's fair to say, isn't it? Surely the Champions League has gone. Um, you know, surely they can't retrieve it from here. But the one, the one sort of grain of hope that they've got is is the top four. Jeremy, do you think they can still make up that ground? I mean, it's it's, it's a distance now, isn't it? But you know, the the beauty of this season is if you can string three, four wins together, you're suddenly back in the mix, aren't you? Yeah, look, it it, it will. Time will tell him on what, how much damage that result did on Tuesday. Um, you know, they need to get it out of the systems quickly. The issue is, obviously, they've got to go to Real Madrid in three weeks' time. And, you know, they will be at risk of another spanking over there. So, you know, these these heavy defeats, especially the one on Tuesday, because it came at home, it, it sort of burst the bubble of invincibility in terms of Liverpool's European status, uh, like Matt's touched on earlier. But you just don't know how the players are going to react. But like you say, the six points, I think the six points off top four, it's been such a topsy-turvy season. We've seen with Arsenal and Man City, you know, the inconsistency of um, Newcastle. We've been really poor, actually, for the last month or so. And you just don't know what you're going to get from Tottenham, do you? So, um, you know, I wouldn't put it past Liverpool to get finished fourth. I really wouldn't. But it's going to be, a, they're going to have to be, we have to put a consistent run together. And that's difficult at this stage of the season. You've got injuries, you've got tiredness, you know. So I'd be interested to see what he does in the second league running club, what sort of team he puts out. Because if he wants to get in the top four, he probably has to rest a few for that return leg. And, you know, you feel the weakened team in Madrid and they're there on, on the ball, Madrid and both of the kill, you're going to get absolutely battered. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that isn't it? what famously brought down Brendan Rodgers, basically resting players? In the bird. Yeah, well, left Gerard out. Can you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It hurt players. Didn't it? I've never had a relationship. Really hurt, hurt players. It, it would seem to me, Matt, that sort of that fourth, you know, spot is is there for the taking, basically. It's a, it's a question, isn't it? Who wants it? You know, sort of Newcastle, Tottenham, Liverpool. I, I have to say, I think that Tottenham would be would be my, my, my favourite. For some reason... They've been a bit flaky again under Conte. You, you, we thought he'd coached that out of them, but they're, they're dropping points where they shouldn't. And I mean, it, the, the, the chemistry there just doesn't seem quite right at the moment. Um, so if Liverpool can put a run together, you know, I think it is it not, I think it's seven points. I think they're just behind Spurs if they win their two games and hand Liverpool. But it's going to be so close. I don't see United with the momentum they've got should be safely into the top four. And I don't see Arsenal match City giving up the lead they've got. Um, so it is just between, I think, Spurs. And unfortunately, Newcastle, their problem all season has been they've made so much of so little um, in terms of keeping those clean sheets uh, and making the most of them, turning them into three points, that there was going to be a slip at some point where they weren't winning games comfortably enough to come slightly off the boil and still win them. Uh, and I think perhaps, you know, a Europa League place is, is you know, a creditable performance for them and, and what they might have to resign themselves to. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so it's a two horse race. But Liverpool need to keep the momentum, the pressure on Spurs to try and find out if that weakness still is in that mentality. Um, because, you know, they could still nick it. And uh, uh, Spurs fans could get quite anxious with the uh, YR way in this season. So, yeah, they, they've got to keep focused on that because that, that could be what salvages Liverpool's season. The issue is, John, as well, just before we move on, that if they don't get in the top four, Liverpool, the chance are they probably finishing the top six. They'll be in the Europa League. And that's just not great for them in terms of, you know, extra games, a lot of Thursday games, Sunday games. You know, that's going to be debilitating for Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think it'll be a... It'll be a stark reality, won't it? It'll be a, it'll be a, you know, um, a real wake up call. I think for, for for a set of fans that have really enjoyed a fantastic ride under Jurgen Klopp. So let's see what comes next. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. But honestly, the Carabao Cup final this weekend, it looks a fantastic appetising prospect, doesn't it, really? A real glamour final between, you know, two two fantastic clubs. It makes me think of, of way back in the day when I had a Super Striker set and the original Super Striker came as Manchester United against Newcastle. And I was thinking a few years on, I was thinking, you know, these are the best two clubs in the country. Well, they absolutely are again at Wembley on, on, on Sunday. And it's it's a fabulous occasion, isn't it, for Newcastle in particular to be back in a major final. And for Eric Ten Hag, for United, you know, this is it, isn't it, really? The first chance of silverware. They've come a long way in a short space of time. You know, Matt, you know, it's, it's a trophy, isn't it, that really is worth winning. And for all the detractors and for all the sort of naysayers, it's generally a glamour final. It's generally also featuring, you know, normally features Manchester City, doesn't doesn't this year? But I mean, it's it's you know it really should be a very special occasion, shouldn't it? Yeah, I just hope that Newcastle, the way they've been playing, turn up and make it a, a showcase final. Um, can't remember what year it was. They they were in the, the FA Cup final and were very disappointing. Um, you know, their recent form suggests that perhaps. The big big match nerves uh, are getting to them, maybe. Uh, so hopefully they turn up, play some football, do the play their best game, and you know give their fans what they they so desperately want, which is you know a really good shot and a trophy. Um, obviously their goalkeeper situation is hugely unfortunate. 
Um, and that could be the teller because I think Newcastle's best chance of winning is to keep a clean sheet. Um, and, you know, it's a big call who, whether you play uh, Lloris Karias in goal for the first time for an English club, I think, since the 2018 Champions League final, which I watched again on Google and on uh, YouTube, and it doesn't get any better for him. Um, so, yeah, no, it's going to be a fascinating game. And United, I mean, people talk about it being the launch of a new era like it was with Mourinho's Chelsea and Liverpool more recently. I don't think they're that strangers to, to silverware that is quite as serious as that. But they do need a steady stream of success at Old Trafford to, you know, to keep the club going. And uh, their fans will be up for it as well. It should be, as, as so often in the Carabao Cup final, it should be a great occasion. Yeah, yeah, Jeremy. I mean, it's it's a great opportunity for Newcastle, isn't it? To say that to say that the Toonami are excited just doesn't do it do, do it justice, really, does it? Well, I've already got the bus parade booked in for Tuesday, but they won't have one, obviously, if they lose, which is not a, much of a surprise. Uh, that that story, you know, smacked me across the chops yesterday because we did I mean um, you must confess we had a laugh amongst ourselves here but which team has a bus parade if they come second I mean what come on I mean it's the most ridiculous notion well I can confirm that if I don't win the lottery this weekend I won't be going to the pub to celebrate that's really good of you to be honest well I might be able to pub anyway <laughs> um, yeah look it's great for Newcastle what is it 15 55 was it the last one a trophy it's a, it's it's a a tangible proof that they are going in the right direction of Eddie Howe. You know, they're probably going to spend a lot of money in the summer. Um, now they've got wealthy owners. So they are, they, are, they are now a force to be reckoned with. And if they can win it, it'll be statue time for Eddie Howe. Because, you know, they win so little Newcastle. But he's, like you touched on me earlier, it's great for Carabao, the sponsor. They've got an, an ideal final. Two massive clubs, massive traditions. Massive histories, and whoever wins, it will be a, a fascinating story because obviously United have not won anything since 2017, so it's almost six years since they won something, and that's staggering, really, for a club of their their size um, and history in the game. So um, it'd be big for either manager. I've got to say, I mean, if Ten Hag wins it, it'll be it'll make you see whatever happens between now and the end of the season will make his season a success. And you know, to, to win a trophy in his first season would be. Astonishing to Ten Hag when you think about where they were when he took over and where they are now. He was out for dinner, wasn't he, with Fergie the other night? I mean, picking his brains, so you know that's not going to do him any harm. Um, you know, he's, he's obviously a clever man. He's worked out what works at United and what doesn't, and they are full steam ahead towards winning silverware on a regular basis again. I think. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing, isn't it, what he's done? Because first two games of the season, you know, you're thinking, where, where's this going? People are immediately sort of saying he's either right choice, and you know, yeah, that's what you get with United, isn't it? But basically, you know, you're supposed to get instant success, and everyone thinks, oh, well, that's impossible. It's going to take time. Well, actually, he's just done amazing, isn't he? You know, I, I think it is a uh, people laugh at me when I say this, but I think he's, he, he's built a team out of the most imbalanced squad. You know, he's missing key players. Their issues. I mean, Casemiro made a huge difference, but. You know, it, it looks a very, very strange team to me and not a classic team by any ordinary imagination. And yet he's somehow managed, you know, which is a massive tribute to his management, that he's built a team out of that squad. 
they signed the right players for the right positions. Obviously, they signed, like you said, Casemiro, who's made such an impact in midfield. Um, they signed Ericsson, who we all know the quality of Ericsson. I know he's injured at the minute. Um, and he signed Martinez, who has basically been the rock around which United's defence has been built. And he's, you know, he's, he's made some big calls. He, he's obviously got rid of Ronaldo. He's left Maguire out, you know, who basically would just get picked regularly and regularly with that, irrespective of his form. He would just always be in the team. He's taken a, he's a club captain, Maguire. He's left him out. And, you know, the chances are I think Maguire will probably leave in the summer because he needs to be playing. But he's made some brave calls. He didn't mess about to Narg. And it's what, it's what United needed. I think there was an element of they've gone a bit soft under Solskjaer and then Renier and the players came and went and did what pretty much what, what they wanted. There was no sort of discipline. Um, clearly, the training methods were, were not up to scratch and they had no plan. And he's changed everything in, what, eight months? Um, so it's been astonishing, really. And it's actually in the title race. I don't think they'll win the title, but they're in it. Well, they're five points behind. So, you know, there's still a long way to go this season. And, I mean, if you won the title, well, that'd be absolutely one of the greatest stories ever in English football. Don't think the world, but, you know. No, but I think they're going to go close. But, you know, they're the only team in Europe's top five leagues that can still win four trophies this season. And I expect them to win on, listen, I don't think they'll win four trophies, but I expect them to win on Sunday. And you know that, like Matt said, that's just such a great springboard for moving forward. You know, for confidence and belief, and it'll make that that those players has got hungry to win more. That's what that's what the top players do. They're the more, they're just relentless. They want to keep winning. Matt, who do you make favourites Sunday? Yeah, I think United are favourites. Um, partly because of Newcastle's form, partly because of the goalkeeper thing we've said before, which is bound to affect the belief of the defence as well, uh, and partly because. I think, like we say, Ten Hag's really got the United players playing for each other and they know how big it is for the club to be winning trophies. I mean, for all the, the compliments that have been paid uh, to Ten Hag, a Manchester United manager is measured on what he wins. I mean, we, we, we've laughed about Pochettino on this podcast often enough, but at Spurs, you don't have to win things to be a good Spurs manager. You do have to win things to be a good Manchester United manager. That's not bizarre thing I've ever heard. Mainly because it's such a big club, and that's the measure of success at United. Maybe about Spurs. Yeah, no, but Spurs aren't that big a club in terms of the expectation. I mean, they're trying to engineer themselves to be a big club with their infrastructure and everything else, but they're not there yet. Um, and at the moment, United are, well, United always have been, and if they're not winning things, you're not a good United manager. It's as simple as that. It's a really harsh um, reality, but and he's come from so far behind and done so well that I kind of hope he does win it or win something substantial this season, just to say put the crown on it and say that no one can take this away from me, I've done this um, otherwise it's too easily forgotten in the annals of history uh, you know, what he has achieved this season Do you know what I mean? Before we move on to United and, and, and it, will, it will follow on seamlessly of course the Newcastle and their ownership. The Newcastle fans are obviously bathing in this, in this glory, enjoying the pit, you know, the, the glory on the pitch and the, the upturning fortunes under Eddie Howe. You know, the, the sort of kind of tell me, Ma, I'm going to Wembley song. Is any of that it, it, tarnished? But do, do you have to take that 
you know, the ownership and where the money is coming from and where, where it's being bankrolled from in, into consideration in this Newcastle fairy tale. You're always asking a difficult question, don't you? Yes. Look, whatever happens for Newcastle in the next five, ten years, however much success they have, it will always be against that backdrop we all know about, which is, you know, they are owned by Saudis. Um, sorry, I've just lost your muscling. Um, and, you know, we don't have to go into the details of, of, of the kind of people they are in Saudi Arabia, been well documented. But actually, Eddie Howe has fashioned a team there this season that is not really been that expensively put together. I know they signed Gamaro in midfield, quite a lot of money, but, you know, he's not gone mad. He didn't go mad in January. Um, and it's very much a team he's just tweaked a little bit since he took over. And obviously, all that could change in um, in the summer, and I expect him to make some big signings. But actually, if, they, if, that, if that team wins on Sunday, that is very much a team that is... It's not like a team of Galacticos or anything. So it's more down to Eddie Howe's skills as a manager more than who owns the club in terms of the wealth. But yeah, whatever happens between now and the next decade, if they win 15 trophies, there will always be it. It will always be tarnished. But you know, if someday the Newcastle fans, they won't give a hoot, will they? They'll be absolutely loving it. And similarly, Matt, Manchester United's you know, potential takeover. We don't absolutely know that it's going to be, be a takeover yet, do we? But we sus- we so strongly suspect it will be. You know, there's two clear bidders there. You know, the Qatari interest there almost being painted against Jim Ratcliffe, the self-acclaimed um, uh, Manchester United fan. Uh, yeah. should, should United fans... Be concerned. Should they should they choose between the two? Should they, you know, should should they really want Qatari ownership? I think there is a danger with all these subjective uh, things of picking your own criteria as to what a good chairman is, a good owner, uh, was a bad owner. And there's enough evidence in the history of football that um, of local owners who've done absolutely no good whatsoever for their clubs um, because they're not very nice individuals. Um, and to paint uh, an ownership group with a, with a you know, to tarnish it with, with a sort of black brush this, this early, you know, for what, for what their country represents, well, you know, everything else. I think you've just got to be careful. If you're going to, they're either appropriate to be owners of the football club or they're not. And, and that's what we hope will probably come into in the last part of the, of the uh, podcast. Um, you, you've, what I'm trying to say is that you can make these really subjective judgments that, that we don't want Qataris running our football. It does smack of pigeonholing people. And, uh, you know, if, if it is the state fund, then yeah, okay, there are issues with that. But but there are bad individual owners as well, and I think we need to remember that. And each case should be judged on its merits. What we don't want is a competition between all the rogues in the world who have all loads of, you know, Ilkon gains 
because then I think that completely demerits the whole competition. But but I think we need to be careful about what criteria we use. And that's why I think, you know, in the last part of the podcast, uh, that's such a key part um, in this government white paper of, um, uh, of what needs to be done in terms of managing who is owning our football clubs. Tell you what, Grossi, one thing on United. Whoever, whoever gets United, whether it be Jim Radcliffe or um, Sheikh Jassim, or whether if someone else comes forward, they are. It will split opinion in terms of the Qatari situation, but ultimately United supporters will view whoever gets the club as being a better option than the Blazers because the Glazers have been so despised. They are, you wouldn't find one United fan who absolutely would, would, would say anything positive about the Glazers because they've saddled the club with so much debt. You know, they've leveraged so much money out of the club and they've shown little interest in actually being there. So um, whoever does get control of United, um, they will start on a positive footing because they are not the Glazers, essentially. Yeah, yeah. We, we, gosh, we, we were all at the World Cup in, in, in Doha. And, you know, I, I think we came back with very mixed views, didn't we, about about the tournament, good football tournament, you know. Came back with a suntan. No, well, I've never come back with a suntan or anywhere. But, um, but I, um, I, you know, I, I personally enjoyed the sort of the one city element to it. But the one thing that I could never escape from is, is you know, is, is that particular regime, is that repressive regime and what it meant. You know, for for example, for the LGBTQ community, you know, you wouldn't feel, you know, welcome there at all. I don't think. Um, you know, it's 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 a different part of the world to what what we're used to. Um, and there was a lot of talk about it afterwards. But the very fact now that we we kind of got this huge money interest in Manchester United, when we talk about sports washing, what is sports washing? It's 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 making it acceptable, isn't it? And I don't. I don't know that it's it's you know the potential Qatari ownership and takeover of Manchester United hasn't sparked the I don't think the outcry and maybe it's because of what you raised, Jeremy. You know because of the, because of the Glazer factor, if you like. You know is 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 that a, a reality, Matt? Do you think then that basically that is partly because with the lack of outcry in a way? I mean, there has, don't get me wrong, there has been from certain quarters, but I don't. You know, it hasn't caused the the, the outrage of say a new, you know Saudi and Newcastle. I don't think. Yeah, I think to be fair, Saudi and Newcastle have taken the buffer for that. For United, we've got ourselves used to the fact that that there are nation states involved in the Premier League now whose belief system we don't necessarily agree with, and certainly don't you know as I condone in any way. Um, and that has taken the brunt of it, and. The arguments have already been had. They've already fallen on deaf ears. We are where we are. So there's kind of a lack of will to do it all again at Manchester United, I think, which is a shame because all the, the valid reasons not to have people in charge of a football club, which is effectively a massive cornerstone of a community. Um, where Each football club has its own community and it's all about the fans, the people. Uh, and, and if those individuals are not being treated equally by the club's owners or not seen as equal by the club's owners. That is a massive problem. It should be something that's all about togetherness. A football club is coming together to support the team. And if there is divisiveness, 
in the belief system at the, the, the very top of a football club, that can never be a good thing. And that's why, you know, legislation perhaps is required. But I think it's really just really dangerous subjective to say, oh, the Qataris were equals bad, you know, Americans also equals bad, but for different reasons in the Glazers. Um, and, you know, there needs to be a, pro a coherent system where we say, who do we want to be in charge of our football clubs and uh, make it an absolute sort of, as, as nailed down uh, a list of criteria as is possible to have. The fact is, John, you know, whether we like it or not, and most people don't like it, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, that, that section of the planet in the Middle East that contains some of the world's richest men and they have staggering wealth. And whenever a club like Manchester United or Liverpool or whoever is going to go for sale, they are going to be at the forefront of any bidding war. So, you know, and we've just had the, like you say, just had a World Cup in Qatar. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there's going to be a World Cup in Saudi Arabia in the next 10 years, uh, 15 years maybe. Uh, the Club World Cup, that's over there. So, you know, they are not going away, is what I'm trying to say. And you can argue against their um, human rights records all you like, but it's not going to keep them down, basically. And as a final thought on that, from me, um, I think the Premier League will be a lot better at saying you play by our rules than FIFA were um, when it came to putting their foot down in terms of, you know, if they want to play in the Premier League and be part of the Premier League, then they accept the Premier League's way of doing things. Whereas obviously FIFA with their various U-turns or a number of important issues uh, around the World Cup completely negated the whole idea of it shining a light on a different culture and perhaps you know, giving a chance to right a few uh, wrongs over that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, on a similar subject, we, we, you know, let's move on to the, the, the publication today of the of the white paper and the you know the governance of, of football um you know uh, independent regulators be appointed what does it mean really i mean i think it's good news you know as i see it for fans isn't it you know because the licensing system will you know if you want a license as a football club you have to engage with fans and give them a say um which is you know which is really important um you know the owners and directors test i think you know there will be one consistent and then basically that will take away I think the doubt and then basically move it into uh, one sphere the thing that really strikes me is that there's still no 
financial agreement and share between the Premier League and the rest, if you like, which is obviously at the top of that agenda, at the top of that list is is the EFL. And, um, you know, I mean, it's clear, isn't it, that basically the uh, the Premier League, um, sorry, um, the, 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 the recommendation from the white paper basically says you, you guys have got to come to an great agreement. And if you can't, then, then basically we'll step in and, and, and broker that agreement for you. But it does seem strange to me that that's, that that's the starting point that you come in at because the EFL are not in a strong bargaining position at the moment. And it, it, it I don't know, it feels, it doesn't doesn't strike me as that basically the regulator is going to be a sort of a, in a, a strong position to help ne- negotiate that. Really, I mean, I just surely there's there's more help at hand, isn't there, from Premier League clubs, or, or is that expecting too much? John, you were there when the COVID hit, and uh, of course we're going to reach out down the pyramid. We'll help them out, and that just melted away and melted away. As peepers, we've got to look after our selfology just kicked in. And that's always going to be the way with the Premier League. The idea of having an independent regulator backed by the government is that they can say to the Premier League, look, unless you give this money, pass this money down the pyramid, you will not be allowed to operate. That's, that's the weapon that nobody's had. The FA haven't got. They can plead, they can beg. And that's effectively what everyone's going cap in hand to the Premier League saying, Please give us some of your money, and uh, and yeah, the Premier League say, well, yeah, we're the ones who've negotiated all these deals. We've done this. Yeah, we're entitled to keep it. Uh, and and the argument against that is, yeah, but we we support you. We provide you players. And if it wasn't for us, it's all emotive stuff. Um, and for instance, the government to be supporting in this current climate to be supporting football in any way is absurd when there's so much money coming into the game. I find that really hard. You know, when we've got everybody on strike, um, everybody, you know, nurses still, you know, struggling for pay, all the rest of it. You can't be giving, the government can't be giving any money to football. Football makes enough money to go around to support the whole structure. The Premier League just needs to be persuaded to let go of more of it, to, to let it filter down and support the community clubs that do so much good in their areas and they've not been able to do that historically they've always fought against it uh, and uh, and when push has come to shove they backed away from the big open proposals that they always make um now the government are going to get tough funny enough i bumped into tracy crouch on a train on the way to a spurs game uh just the other week well but it was pleased to be you he was delighted um, yeah, so we were we, we were nattering Spurs. She's a real fan. Were you in first class again, Nunny? Uh, no, no, neither was she, more importantly. But uh, because she's a real fan, she understands what fans want. She's done a superb piece of work behind this white paper. And now it's a big chance for, 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 the, for this country to put football in a place where it needs to be. My big concern is what are FIFA going to say about it? Because they say specifically, Rule 15C says there's to be no political interference in the game. They've bad countries like Sudan, Malawi, Nigeria, Pakistan, Venezuela, where governments have got involved. They threatened to kick Spain out of the 2018 World Cup when their uh, sports council 
uh, threat to get involved in the elections of the Spanish FA president. And this has got a long way to run. And ultimately, the government have got to be bold enough to say, we're doing this for the good of football. So we are going to withstand any threats from FIFA to, to basically kick England out of the international game, which could be along the line. It's going to be a dirty war because the Premier League are going to fight hard, but it's an important one. A once in a perhaps a generation chance to get this game back on track. And, uh, you know, people have got to have the courage to see this through now. Yeah, it is. It is. You make it all regulated. Oh, okay. I'll take it. Yeah. Good, Jeremy, I mean, I have to say, I can see the Premier League point of view in the basic. The clubs don't want to bail out a reckless spender, a reckless team like Derby, who push themselves to the white. You know, Dar- you know, Derby, I think in previous some previous meetings, have boasted just about how much wealth they've got. And then when it all fell apart, why should Premier League clubs have to bail out? But, you know, I, I also think that the not every club is like a Derby. You know, the vast majority, as Matt says, are community-run clubs. You know, a lot of grassroots football produce the Premier League stars tomorrow. Yeah. A lot of EFL clubs are outside the parachute payments. You know, the parachute payments the, the EFL argue against, don't they? Because it it artificially inflates the, the championship. Uh, when you consider the transfer window that we've just had, Surely there's more money to, to, to filter down, to be spread out. There cannot be, surely, much of an argument against the Premier League doing more, you know, from a financial sense. Obviously, you look at how much money Todd Verley spent, the Chelsea owner, they spent a quarter of a billion quid in less than two weeks. Now, obviously, that's, that's his money, um, and he will argue I can spend it how I want. Fair enough. But it's just such a bad look when you see a club like Chelsea spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds on players and then, you know, you hear that they're having a meeting and with with the EFL and they're being selfish about how much um, of the money from revenue streams, TV money filters through down to the lower clubs. So it's just a bad look. And like Matt said... the fact that we are having a white paper on the English game, the national sport, tells should tell everyone in this country that actually that this, this game we, that we all love is is not sustainable enough or stable enough because COVID showed how fickle the game is. There's a lot of club foundations are built on sand, essentially. So there has to be some gear from the Premier League teams. There has to be. Otherwise, you know, we're going to go around in circles. I mean, you know, Rick Parry, had a meeting this week, didn't he, where he said that I think they, they won 25%. We get 17 currently. So, you know, I'm not I'm not into finances, but that doesn't seem like a massive ask from the EFL's point of view. Surely there's got to be some give from these big clubs, especially because, you know, they are eating all, all the pie at the minute. And, you know, like Matt said, the, these clubs, they're community clubs. They, they, People live for these football clubs. It's such a huge part of their lives. And if they go, they go out of business, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be disastrous. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope they can uh, reach some arrangement because I just don't feel as if, you know, I think it's a shame that it's been left like this because I just don't, as I said, I don't think the AFL is in a great bargaining position. Who, who, who appoints the regulator? And who, who is it? Who, what, field of, what field of work is that person likely to come from? Well, <laughs> 
I, I, I think Gordon Brown has been mooted at some point in the past, and he, but um, I, I, I actually think that in a way he shouldn't be a football person, you know, of the overall regulator. Well, they've probably got to have a handle on the game, all this thing about, you know, a proper football person, all that sort of stuff. Actually, it probably needs to be more of a cold-hearted business, um, you know, person, really, I would, I would suggest. But it, just because they can take a sort of a, a, a non-emotive view, because as soon as you get wrapped up in emotion, I think people lose their minds on, in, in football, don't they? And, you know, don't see wood for the trees, really. Of course, you know, that's probably pie in the sky but it'll be it'll be really interesting the other thing that really strikes me is that you know make no bones about it the previous prime minister Liz Truss clearly didn't want the football regulator um the current prime minister is has then pushed ahead with a football regulator um I would strongly suggest then that perhaps the sort of kind of maybe a Labour government might push harder on the football regulator, you know, for, for you know, more of a more of a share, for example. And all this shows and plays into Matt's point that however much you say it's an independent regulator, independence only gets you so far, really, because there has to be some degree of political element and political argument, even if this regulator is apolitical, then I'm sorry, but a change of government would see a bigger push for, you know, the Labour's DNA surely is, is more about sort of kind of, you know, a bit more of a share, whereas the, you know, the Tories stand for something else. And it's, you know, that's the way that politics works. And so I do, I do feel as if it, it would, it's very, very difficult, I think, to maintain a, um, a neutral view and, in, and independence within this. And that's where I'm inclined to agree with with Matt that basically I can't see quite how you can maintain an independence and independence in, in into playing into this. And I wonder whether FIFA might have a, have a sort of a say yet. It, it's it, it's a really interesting point. Will will the new regulator have to pass the new um, stringent fit and proper person test? <laughs> It'll be interesting, really, to see. You know, so I think that, I mean, you know, I've, I've been sent the white paper and, uh, you know, I think it's under embargo until it's, it's actually announced in Parliament. But, I mean, it's 99 pages long and it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting, really. But um, uh, it'll be interesting to see all sort of the, the, the full details. I think the government are doing some briefing later on, aren't they? And, uh um, you know, the devil is always in the detail, and perhaps it will be, it will be, um, you know, you, you know, that detail will will underline just exactly where their priorities are. But at the moment, I did feel a bit, you know, from the details that we've got so far, it felt a little bit underwhelming, really. And I wish they would sort of kind of bared their teeth. It's great for fans, please don't get me wrong, and it's been welcomed by the majority of people. But I do, I do worry that basically it won't be enough. I don't think to to promise a. a, a a better share, a fairer share for the EFL. But guys, listen, we're, we're going to finish on on John Motson just because just before we came on air and we started broadcasting, we we you know had the sad news confirmed confirmed that the you know legendary BBC commentator, 
famous for his his, his fantastic commentaries and and sound bites and insight in, into the game as well as his sheepskin coat um, had, had sadly passed. And you know, I don't know. Perhaps a couple of recollections. Can I start with you, Matt? What's your what would be your tribute? We used to bump into him, didn't we? Occasionally, in or, yeah, behind the scenes before games or whatever. What always struck me is he was always talking about football, always talking, you know, about the the latest little minutiae and whatever. His knowledge was exceptional. We're we're of an era. Um, you're slightly older than me, of course, but we're of an era that we grew up with John Watson um, as the main BBC commentator, uh, and his voice kind of narrates any football in your head. Yeah, it's that that sort of standout uh, and. And it was the the abiding image with everything that's being shown at the moment is him stood in his sheepskin coat on that snowy pitch. Uh, and it was, he would go to every length to try and give the best that he possibly could. And, and I know he was, you know, speaking to some of the, the younger commentators, he was always a, a very giving mentor for them as well. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, basically just a football man through and through. And yeah, his excitement of the game, his love of the game, um, you know, always came through in his commentary and, you know, brought some of the dullest games to life. You don't appreciate it. Well, John, I mean, we, we do because we know people in broadcasting who work in television and in radio. The amount of research these guys have to do because they are constantly talking while the game is ongoing and they have su- such a vast knowledge of every player, every statistic, every memory and all the history of that fixture. It involves, you have to be a, a bit of a nerd to, to do your job properly. And we, we know some fine guys who work in our industry who are on the top of the game. But, you know, John Monson, I met him a couple of times. The lovable nerd, I've got to say, you know, just loved the game, didn't he? Live for the game. Um, and obviously he was commentating on that famous Ronnie Radford goal um, when Newcastle got dumped out of the FA Cup. But like Matt said, I think he started on Match of the Day in 1971, which is the year I was born, so I grew up. My memories of him as a child, he was the voice of football, basically, in every FA Cup final. He nailed it without a shadow of a doubt. And, you know, if you watched another game with another commentator back then, you almost felt like it wasn't quite the same because it wasn't John Motson who commentated. He'll be go down as a legend of the game. And I'm just looking at his stats here. He covered more than 200 England games, covered 10 World Cups, 10 European Championships, and 29 FA Cup finals, which is just quite a staggering broadcasting career, though. And he got a got awarded OBE, deservedly so. Yeah, it'll be sadly missed. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I must say, I did. I sort of, you know, obviously came across him in a sort of professional capacity, but he was involved in sort of kind of North London Sunday football, and sort of kind of had a champions of team, you know, that sort of kind of played. I, I live in North London, played Sunday football for years, and basically, you know, came came across him, and uh, you know, there he was, as passionate on the sidelines watching Sunday football. You know, as he was, in sort of almost in covering, um, you know, a, a sort of the high-profile FA Cup final or whatever it might be for the BBC, which to me just underlines just how passionate he is about football and the pure love of the game. Basically, you know, just just wants to be involved. I mean, the, the, it was interesting, wasn't it? For a while, the BBC almost, I think, enjoyed this sort of almost a rivalry between Motti and, and 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 Barry Davis, basically, as as the kind of who was the it was it was the lead comment commentary, and it felt like you know you kind of either in the Motti camp or the Barry Davis camp. I'm sure that basically n- neither of the individuals would see it like that. But I just think that he was just 
you know, it was a, a, it, that in particular was a, a, a golden time of the greats, you know, because you had Brian Moore, I think, as well. You know, often you see the sort of the reruns, you, you, you hear a sort of a young Martin Tyler is obviously, you know, just absolutely fantastic commentator too. And, um, you know, and then sort of Clive Tilsley sort of kind of then coming through. It's just a golden era, wasn't it, really, that Motti almost started. I think that's, that's the point, isn't it? There's sort of kind of, he was sort of, you know, young on the scene and, you know, just started this incredible era of commentators. And obviously, these these guys' voices become part of your life. You know, they become synonymous with their chosen sports. So M- Motti with football, you know, Peter Alice with golf, Dan Maskell with the tennis, you know. They were all the people I grew up with. with their, they just, their voice became just ingrained in your mind when you were watching a chosen sport. Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like it's sort of kind of, I always think of it as, you know, the James Alexander Gordon sort of, you know, the, 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 the classified results on on, on sport report basically is just ingrained in your in your kind of thoughts. Yeah, Peter Sullivan with horse racing. Yeah, yeah, it's just you know it's so 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 sad, but an absolute legend and and you know part of the fabric of football basically. So, um, you know we 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 we, we send condolences and wish him well for the, you know wish his family well basically to, to you know over the next. Uh, well, so because you know it, we're saying goodbye, the passing of a of a true football great, absolute legend of the game. Anyway, on that on that rather somber note, I'd just like to thank you for tuning in, and thanks guys for joining, and um, and yeah, I hope to see you again, same time, same place next week. <laughs>